going to go ahead and get started. As you do, I'll remind you we're in the season of Epiphany, when we tell these great stories about the life of Christ. And as we tell the stories and read the scriptures, we ask ourselves in Epiphany two questions. Um, what is being revealed and, what, and how should I respond? So that, that's the season of Epiphany. It's a season of revelation and response where we agree to make actual like real changes in our lives in light of what we learn about Christ. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go today. I recently came across this post by an Irishman. He's a lawyer and historian, a guy named Bill Holloway, and he, he called the post a history lesson for people who think that history doesn't matter. And in it, he said, he asked, why the U.S. standard railroad gauge is a distance of, um, railroad gauge is the distance between the two rails, why it is a distance of four feet, eight and a half inches, because that seems like kind of an odd distance to choose. And um, so he's asking why that become the standard gauge in America. And the, the quick answer is, as with many things, because that's how they did it in the U.K. And, and our for the U.K. engineers, built the first railroads, our first locomotives were imported from England, and so, so that's, that's why. And so, so then he's like, okay, well then, why is four feet, 8.5 inches the standard gauge in the UK? And the answer seems to be there, that the railroad lines were built by the same people who built the wagon tramways. Um, before the steam engine, there were these little local tramways in use all over the place with these little wagons on carts or um, on, on rails, and they were pulled by horses. And so the folks who built the tramways built the railroad, so they used the exact same gauge that they were using before, four feet, eight and a half inches. So then, of course, he asked, well, why was that the gauge at, at that point? And the answer here seems to be that the the people who built the carts for the tramways were the people who built the wagons. They used the same tools and, and jigs used in building horse-drawn wagons. And, and that was the standard gauge for them was four feet, eight and a half inches. So of course, following our, our thing here, he asked why was that the, the spacing, an odd spacing for all the wagons. And the answer seems to be that all the roads in England had wagon ruts that were four feet, eight and a half inches apart, roughly. And they tried, um, when they tried to use like a different kind of a spacing, the wagon wheels would break more often, especially on the old long distance roads around England. So then he asked, well, who, who built the, the, the roads, the old rutted roads in England? Why were they four feet, eight and a half inches apart? And the answer is the Romans. Romans is the answer to a lot of things, by the way. But, um, in fact, about 10 years after the, the death of Christ, the Romans set out to conquer Britain. It took them like four decades to do so. And over that time, they built a lot of roads in England. In fact, Im Imperial Rome wrote, um, built the first long-distance roads all over Europe, including England, and to move their, their legions and their supplies. And those roads were in use ever since that time. So then he asked the question, of course, why did the Romans make their roads with a gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches? And the answer is, that's the width of Roman war chariots that formed the initial ruts. And everyone else who built a wagon 
had to match that same gauge or they would run the risk of destroying the, the wagon wheels and breaking axles. So all Roman chariots were built alike in their wheel spacing. And so Holland con concluded that the US standard gauge on railroads, four feet, eight and a half inches, was derived from the original specs from a Roman imperial war chariot. And, and bureaucracies live forever, he says, right? <laughs> So the next time you are handed a specific procedure or specification procedure pro or process and wonder what horses behind came up with this, you may exact be exactly right. Because Holland said, the next thing is the Roman chariots, if you ask why they were made that wide, the reason is because they were made wide enough for two horses' rear ends to fit behind them. In other words, two, two horses behinds. So this is where we got where we are, is two horses behind, Holland says. Then he puts the whole thing into this stranger twist. Back in the days when the US space program was using the space shuttles, each shuttle had two um, SRBs, solid rocket boosters, made by the manufacturer Morton Thiokol at their factory in Utah. And um, the engineers who designed them originally wanted to make them um, larger in diameter, but they had to be shipped from Utah to Cape Canaveral by train, which goes through a tunnel in the mountains, and so the SRBs had to fit in that tunnel, and the tunnel is only slightly wider than a railroad track, which is, as you know, four feet, eight and a half inches, or about as wide as two horses behind. So a major design feature um, of what was at the time like the most advanced transportation system on the planet was determined 2,000 years ago by the width of a horse's tuchus. And you thought being a horse's behind was not important, right? And so Holloway's conclusion was ancient horses behinds control all the transportation widths and current horses behinds control everything else. <laughs> which, is, which is like the most Irish joke ever made in the history of the world. I actually snopsed this because it sounded like a little, uh, a little fishy to me. And so the snopes guys do not like this, uh, uh, this at all. Um, it's not that it isn't true, it's just like strains the logic of his case, um, which is probably true, but it's a pretty good story though. And, and a good reminder that we really don't know why we do what we do most of the time. You know, there's like a subtle, automaticity to our lives. We followed these well-grooved paths that were here long before we got here, and we don't really know where they came from or why they are the way they are. Most of our actions and reactions are sort of um, involuntary and unconscious, like reflexes that are just deeply ingrained and habitual and therefore invisible to us. We, we don't know where they came from. It's like that great quote from Marshall McLuhan, he, the media critic. He said, we don't know who discovered water, but we know it wasn't the fish, right? That's kind of how it, it works for us. It's too close. We, we can't see why we do what we do most of the time or why we think and believe what we think and believe. And here's the thing. Nowhere is this more true than in our religious discourse, I think. And this is really kind of the role of religious orthodoxy in people of faith. You know, most religious language usually starts with some kind of a burning question that's difficult to 
answer and it's bothering people. And so wise and faithful people struggle with the question over a long period of time. They wrestle with the concepts involved. They articulate possible answers. They talk and they argue and slowly vet the language until they come up with an orthodox way to talk about the problem. If you think orthodoxy, ortho um, means right, dox means speaking. Orthodoxy just means the right way of speaking about some burning question. And, and when orthodoxy is produced at first, everybody knows this inherent connection between the burning question and the, the orthodox way of answering it, the language itself. And there's kind of a humility to orthodoxy in the beginning. Like, they know this doesn't say everything that could be said, but it, it's, a, it's, it's a good word. Not the last word, but a good word. It's kind of provisional and subject to later revisions. But this is the best we could do right now. And so they just, they just run with it, kind of maintaining that intrinsic connection to the, between the problem and, and the answer. But, but over time, what happens is the, that tether goes away. And, and the orthodox answer kind of stands on its own and becomes more and more of a focus. And people almost forget about the original question that went into articulating this orthodox answer. And, and the experts eventually get annoyed when people want to reopen the discussion. They say, don't keep asking the question, just repeat this answer that we gave you. And here's the thing, I think, that when that connection between a burning question and our orthodox language, that's supposed to be provisional and subject to revision, when that becomes severed, then orthodoxy becomes kind of a substitute for wrestling with the burning question itself. People stop thinking about it. Stop asking the question. They just accept the answer, even though they don't really know where the answer came from. This is what led um, Orwell to say, um, orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. It's like the standard gauge for the U.S. railroads. I know nobody knows where it comes from. You just four feet, eight and a half inches, just conform to it. And much of religious discourse is like this, like the railroad tracks. There's this orthodoxy is just sort of there, but it has become disconnected from the questions that produced it. And, and from the memory of how it's supposed to be, it's kind of provisional and always up for you know, further iterations. And when that happens, and it almost always happens, orthodoxy can become a substitute for wrestling with the difficult questions. And then religious discourse has kind of been, become unthinking, as in not thinking about why we do what we do most of the time and why we think and believe what we think and believe. Does that make sense? Now, luckily, there's a problem embedded in all orthodoxy, because there's always this remainder within orthodoxy, this kind of growth on, on top of it, this exception to the rule. There's some part of the question and the answer that remains unanswered by the orthodoxy of the day. There's always some situation in which the language of orthodoxy isn't quite right. It falls short in its explanation. And this remainder is always a disturbance 
kind of an internal antagonism. It's unsettling. It's mostly unconscious to us because we try really hard not to see it or think about it, but it's always there, this disturbance unsettling our settled answers, this antagonism that we try not to notice. Very often, the antagonism comes in the form of a person, the outcast in the family, in the society, in, in the group, in the classroom, in what, wherever. The, the one who doesn't fit with the orthodoxy, and their very presence just calls into question all the answers we've kind of embraced, and so we begin to try to enforce a little orthodoxy here, treat it almost like a natural law. And if somebody doesn't conform, we just push them further and further out because their presence bothers us. It unsettles us. The outcast always disturbs our peace because they reconnect the orthodoxy um, to that original question. They connect them back again. That's why they unsettle our settled answers. They, they force us to start asking those original questions again, and they start revealing how our original answers, our orthodox answers, don't work for some people for these disturbances, the outcasts. When Jesus showed up in um, Nazareth preaching in the synagogue, the last couple of weeks we talked about this, he said that his mission was to proclaim jubilee, right, good news to the outcasts. And he questioned the Jewish orthodoxy of his day, critiquing their nationalism and the kingdoms of this world whose power is rooted in, in things like violence and vengeance. Remember, he left vengeance off. And the response was dramatic. They drove him out of town, tried to kill him. And, and then today's story that we read just a few minutes ago comes right on the heels of that and sort of builds upon that same theme. Only it happens in Capernaum, where Jesus apparently had a home, had some kind of a house, a little fishing village on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting, at that time, people all around the Mediterranean, they, they ate more fish than any other kind of meat. Uh, and the people of Capernaum caught and cleaned and sold fresh fish. And they also um, salted and dried and pickled fish and shipped it all over the Roman Empire. There's a booming fishing industry there, which... Jesus knew nothing about, right? Because Jesus was not a fisherman. He was an, from inland. He was a carpenter. And he at some point moved over here to Capernaum. He's teaching, healing people, including Simon or Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick, and Jesus healed her. And we're told that one day he's, he's down by the sea, which wasn't touristy back then. This would have been a bustling um, you know, area with thousands of workers in the fishing industry. Jesus goes there to teach um, other fellow Jewish people. Let's read. It says, Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, this is the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. So north, north shore of Galilee has um, these little kind of zigzagging shallow coves where, and it could have been anywhere along there. But he was teaching. The crowd apparently got too big. He jumps in one of the boats 
and, and because um, sound carries you know, over water like seven times faster or farther than on land, he could push out a little ways and just talk to the people kind of in a semicircle there listening. And um, by the way, this marks the first time that Jesus asks for help with his ministry. He's a solo act before this, but now he needs someone who can handle a boat. So um, Peter does it. He, has, he knows how to do this kind of thing. And then we're told Jesus sat down it's important to make us think of just what we talked about last week, the seat of Moses, where he sat down to teach in the, in the synagogue. But here, he's not in the synagogue. He's sitting down to teach, not in the synagogue. So he's, in, in a symbolic sense, he is outside the structures of Jewish orthodoxy now. That's where he has placed himself. And this time, we're not told what he said. Um, just that there's a big crowd listening and then we have this kind of object lesson that stands, this miracle that stands in for the teaching. And it begins with this command he gives to Peter. It says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. And this is kind of the crux of, of the passage. Because you've got to remember, Jesus is a carpenter not a fisherman. Peter, this is his trade. He's been doing this his whole night. He knows what he's doing, and he's fished all night and caught nothing. But now the construction guy has some advice on how to catch some fish, right? And so he's annoyed at the request because he knows a lot about this, some things that, like, Jesus didn't know. For instance, he knew the fish they were trying to catch were um, kick, kick, um, kickladay. They're like, um, We'd call them bluegill, probably. Um, and he knew these fish fed at night, so that's when you go fishing, is at night. In daylight, these guys just hide under the rocks. He knew that these fish congregate around the shallows and the streams where there's oxy oxygen-rich water and plenty of food, and they don't go in the deep water because that's where the big fish live and they get eaten. He also knew that the nets that they were using were called trammel nets. They're made out of um, several different kinds of netting, part of which was this um, muslin, almost called like cheesecloth, or it's wider though. It, they were gill nets, where the, the fish would run into it and they'd get, get stuck. Their gills would make them stuck. They couldn't back out. We know this because these were the only kind of nets that had to be washed every day after you used them, and they're sitting there washing their nets. And he also knew you only use trammel nets at night because fish can see them during the day and they just swim back out away from them. You would put them in a U-shape and they would just swim, swim back the way they came in. So they're, they're worthless during the day. Peter knew all of this. And um, he knew what Jesus was doing or was asking him to do was not going to work. And there's kind of a clue in the, in the Greek that he's perturbed because he calls Jesus epistates which is a, a colloquial term that it means like adept one or, or doctor. But you remember where they are. They're like, they're on the job here. You use, use a little different kind of language and different customs when you're on the job here. So he's calling him epistates, but it's kind of a slam a little bit. He's, it's basically I seen boss. Okay, boss. Like whatever adept one at fishing, who's bossing me and the other for real fishermen around. Peter's kind of jabbing at Jesus. He's like, okay, boss, you're so, you know, good at fishing. Um, let me just tell you, we fished all night, didn't catch anything. Um, we did what we always do, um, and, and it didn't work. 
But um, then I stayed up longer, by the way, and rode your boat for you. Now I just want to go to shore. I want to, you know, take care of my gear, get some food, and fall asleep so I can wake up and fish again all night the next day. But you, Epistates, boss, um, adept at fishing as you are, you want me to throw out my nets, the ones that the fish can see in the daytime, in, in broad daylight, when all the fish are hiding under the rocks, in the deep water where the fish never go. Um, and he's like, I, I kind of want to tell you to sit on it a little bit. But, you, but you're, a pissed, you're the boss, so, and you did me a solid by healing my mother-in-law, or maybe that's a solid. Um, I don't know their cousins. <laughs> but he's like, but I'm going to do this, okay, even though I know it's not going to work, okay? And, and that, this, is, this is really the key to, the, to understanding the whole thing, is that Simon Peter is annoyed by his, this request, but he does it anyway. All right, I mean, this could be a shorthand for all of Christianity as a whole. Like, Jesus will ask us to do over and over really annoying things, and we need to just do it anyway, because you can't really understand them till the far side of having tried it. And, I mean, Peter's, this is his job. He knows what he's doing, but Jesus is asking him to, it's interesting, to do his job in an unorthodox way. That's what he asks. He's questioning the normal orthodoxy. Let's read on. It says, when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. And they signaled their partners in the boat, to, in the other boat, to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. They caught so many fish that the nets are like breaking. And it shouldn't have worked at all. And, and then there's this, this scene with Peter. And there, there's couple different ways to, to um, interpret his reaction. You know, the normal one is he was amazed by the miracle, which is certainly true. It even mentions that here. Um, but why he's amazed is, is another interpretation. It kind of um, involves the economics of this situation. You know, Rome was expanding its empire. They now owned the, the Sea of Tiberias, um, and all the fish belonged to Caesar. So if you want to take fish out, you pay Tax on the fish you caught and tax on everything you sell. And the margins for fishermen are getting really, really tight. And each neighbor has now been turned into a real competitor. So if you're fishing and you find a hot spot, you don't, like, shout it around. Um, you wouldn't tell anybody. There's this um, scholar, New Testament scholar, who lived in, in the Middle East for, like, 40 years, Ken Bailey. He says, the first thought likely to come to Peter's mind was not that Jesus, or was that Jesus had somehow discovered a new spring that had opened in the floor of the lake where the fish were gathering. Peter knew full well that any person with such knowledge could become very rich in a matter of weeks. You know, food's, like, the number one expense in the ancient world. Fish was currency, and two boats full of fish is a fortune. And so Bailey says, that's why it says, 
um, Peter signaled for help. He didn't holler, he signaled, because this is a move of, of competition and, and scarcity, of trying to keep the blessing for themselves, which mirrors the orthodoxy of, of the day in, in their faith life, in the Jewish faith of Israel at the time. I mean, they, they had just hit the jackpot here, and they're trying to keep it for themselves, and this is symbolically stands in for Jewish orthodoxy at the time. And so Bailey says it's kind of a, a stretch to think Peter was so freaked out by the miracle alone. He had seen Jesus do a lot of miracles, including one for his mother-in-law. And, and so he thinks what really blew Peter away and why he was just so ashamed is that Jesus didn't care about the money. And why would he, I mean, this guy taught for free. I would just give this opportunity away. And part of what we're meant to see here is that in this, in this miracle, Jesus is revealing that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of abundance, not scarcity. Scarcity was the orthodoxy of the day. Right? There's enough always for everybody. And so it's meant to be shared liberally with everyone. And Jesus just gives this fish away. He didn't even want any of them. As if to say, you know, there's always enough fish. And when, when Peter saw it, he's kind of undone by this. Bailey writes, how could God possibly be more important than two boatloads of fresh fish? Evidently, Jesus cared more about God and people than he did about acquiring wealth. And Peter found himself face to face with a person who challenged his priorities, challenged his orthodoxy on the deepest level. Peter sensed that he was in the presence of holiness and that he was unclean and should be avoided lest he defile that holiness. That's kind of their orthodoxy as well, the purity codes. It says that Peter was thambos. It means frightened, but amazed at the same time. He's like, go, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This time he doesn't call him boss. It's curios, not aphantes. It's Lord. So Peter's had a transition here from this kind of cheeky, okay, boss, to Lord, and just these few verses. And none of it would have happened if he would have refused to challenge the orthodoxy and do the unorthodox thing, throw out the nets in, into the deeper water. So we don't know what Jesus taught in, in this passage on the shore, but the symbolism of the miracle that, that's kind of joined, conjoined to this teaching is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of abundance, not scarcity. And so when you find it, you just share it without limit. You don't keep it to yourself. And the kingdom of God cannot be found through your orthodox means. You're going to have to cast your nets into deep water. What's the symbolism of that, by the way, the deep water? You know, the, the ground around the Sea of Galilee, it's a pretty big lake, um, and there was Gentile cities and Jewish cities and kind of territories that were either Gentile or Jewish, and the Jews really didn't go into the Gentile territory. They fished kind of around their own lands and in close to the, the shores in the Jewish areas, but the deep was sort of like international waters. And that's where Jesus told them to throw their nets. 
And so, so this, on, on, right on the heels of the story of Nazareth, which is a very similar theme, we see Jesus just kind of really pushing their Jewish orthodoxy here, this insiders versus outsiders thing that they had going at the time. It fell short of God's plan for the world. And Jesus is trying to help them see, you know, Jewish lives are bound together with Gentile lives. Think about that for a moment. It's a radical thing to, stay, to say. This is a big challenge to the orthodoxy. Jewish lives are bound together with Gentile lives. Why? Well, because the Jewish people had been blessed to be a blessing. That goes all the way back to Abraham. They were called to be a nation of priests, mediating the presence of God to all the world, not just to themselves, to the Gentiles and everyone else. In, in terms of their, their mission as the people of God, their identity, the Jewish people couldn't become fully Jewish without the Gentiles because that was their ultimate mission. It's like Jesus was just kind of reconnecting their orthodoxy with the burning question that brought Israel into being in the first place. The burning question was how, how to reconnect humanity and God and then bend the world back toward peace, toward shalom. And just by exposing their, um, their questions and their orthodoxy, the purity code stuff, to the outcast, in this case it's, it's Jesus, it just begins to kind of unravel some of that orthodoxy. And it opens them up to a whole new paradigm of faith. The, the current orthodoxy, this dream of a Jewish kingdom that was once again dominant, this is just too small of a dream. The purity codes, you know, always washing, 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 never getting clean. The drive to perfection by, you know, shunning those or eliminating, destroying those who were problematic or the drive to purify themselves by eliminating any of the negative or the the unclean, they were just casting their nets too narrowly, too shallowly. And it took this, this outsider, this carpenter guy among fishermen, to question the orthodoxy. And when Peter sees it, he's kind of undone. He's like, I have something, bro I have something wrong with me. Like, I'm embarrassed. You should just get as far away from me as you can. And Jesus is like, nah, you're good. Like, come follow me. I'll teach you how to do this. Same thing. And the response was immediate. It says, when they had brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. The word left is authentic. It means released. This is a catch and release fishing story. Jesus catches them. They, they release, right? They, first of all, a fortune in fish. They just left it there because their eyes are open. There's something deeper going on here. There's a whole different economy we're oblivious to. They left an economy of scarcity and, and fear, and this was the orthodoxy of the day. And their religious orthodoxies, they would leave those behind, man. A ton of them, especially the ones that divided and pitted them against each other. Just left everything and followed him. And I think this is part of what the story is supposed to teach us that following Jesus as Lord 
you know, more than boss, involves a break with many of the old orthodoxies and the old social structures of scarcity and especially our religious orthodoxies around grace and what it means and who gets it. And, and it's not that we just drop our orthodoxies. Just always remember the, the walking wall analogy, right? So we mine our tradition for these orthodoxies. We carry them forward, right? And we build them on new ground in new ways. So they get included somehow, but it's going to be it's going to be different in every era, depending on the demands of the day. And the structures have to be structures of faith. Even have to be reimagined and, and, and rebuilt in a, in a new way. And we do this by holding our orthodoxies in tension with the outcasts, so they make us answer that or ask that old question again. In the ancient world, there was this saying um, that it was just common at the time. It was said to be caught in the nets of the gods. It was just a way of describing salvation. You know, the, the, the Greek gods were were not cool. They were petulant and, and petty, and so it was important to put oneself in the good graces, right? To, to be in a position where you can be um, captured, caught by a benevolent God. That's why all the sacrifices in, in Rome. But, but here, the goal is not um, some perfect orthodoxy. This is huge. Because there is no perfect orthodoxy. Everything we can say about God falls short. Everything we can say about God isn't enough. The, so the goal isn't even perfect orthodoxy. Um, the goal is to be caught in the net of this God, caught in the net of Christ. And Jesus had caught these guys in his net that day, not to be their boss, but to be their Lord. Finally, you know, caught in the nets of a good God. And now they'll do life in his name, and God will involve them in the same kind of work they used to do, but just for a completely different reason with a new purpose. He commissions them in terms of their old vocation. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you soldiers for Jesus, right? Or, or a politician for Christ. He says, keep fishing, but I'll teach you to fish for people, in a sense. It's so important because this, this fishers of men thing, um, or fish for people, gets used up in evangelism. It has very little to do with what we would think of as traditional evangelism. And he wasn't saying go convert everybody to this new religion of Christianity. And it certainly wasn't like the bait and switch kind of coercive thing. He, he just wants us to look for the outsiders wherever we are, whatever we do in our normal daily lives, to cast a wide net in the deep waters. Who is it you're, you tend to just, you know, put aside because they call into question the way you see the world, your orthodoxies. I mean, essentially what he's saying is keep doing your work, but let it come under new lordship. Let it get caught in the mission of God, the kingdom of God, in the nets of this God. And to do this, you're going to have to release some things. And in some ways, you're going to have to release your orthodoxies and follow Jesus as Lord. And and to do this, he, he usually leads us toward the disturbance, the outcast, the one who calls our, all our certitudes in, into question. 
and then to figure out a way to include them, to extend God's love and grace to them. And then we'll have a no, whole new way of talking about our faith and, and what orthodoxy really means. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story and for this season of Epiphany where we just let Jesus show up in our world like he did back then and just kind of break open our reality. And ask you to help us see where we've sort of stopped thinking about why we do the things we do and believe and think the ways we think and to really become open to um, being caught in your net and doing the same things we always do, but for a whole different reason, just to find the outcasts and left out and to extend your love and grace to them and then to let that just kind of back up on us and reframe the way we see ourselves and the world and the way we see you, oh God. I pray that you would give us deep down faith that you have us, that we can't mess this up. And if we just hold on to Jesus as Lord, that you'll, you'll guide us, you'll, you, you can keep us. So as we go about um, our lives in this season of Epiphany, God, I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see the things that bother us and challenge and unsettle us, the disturbance. And help us to move toward it instead of away from it. Amen. I invite you to stand now and we're going to receive communion. Um, we just are dismissed row by row and you come forward and receive the little kind of COVID safe shrink wrap thing, which is not my favorite, but it's what we're doing. And um, the reason we do this is because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after he blessed it, he, he broke it and gave it to his, his, his guys and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup and, and, passed this common cup around. They all took a sip from it. And he said, this is um, a new covenant in my blood, a new deal, a new agreement, relationship between you and God established in my blood, which to them meant life. And so he, he, he took his body and his blood kind of symbolically, and he said, whenever you gather, feast on me. Take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then be sent out into the world um, to fish for people. And so this is why we receive communion and why we invite anyone who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. So let's pray a blessing on this, on the elements. Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us... Um, a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. 
make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?